0: King Darius and Queen Parasatus had two sons. Artaxerxes was the elder of the two, and Cyrus was the younger. When Darius was growing feeble and began to suspect that he had not long to live, he wanted both his sons to be at hand. The elder one happened to be there, but he had to send for Cyrus from the province of which he had made him satrap, or governor, he had also appointed him commander in chief over all the troops that muster in the plain of Castilis. Cyrus, then, traveled up to the capital with Tissaphernes, whom he regarded as a friend, taking with him 300 Greek hoplites under the command of Xenius of Parassia. But after the death of Darius, when Artaxerxes was established on the throne, Tissaphernes maligned Cyrus to his brother and accused him of plotting against him. Artaxerxes believed the story, and arrested Cyrus, with the intention of putting him to death. But his mother, by her entreaties, secured his life and his recall to his province. Still, after the danger and disgrace from which he had escaped, Cyrus took measures to ensure that he should never again be in his brother's power. Instead, if he could manage it, he would become king, in his brother's place. That is the beginning of a pretty incredible book. In English, it goes by the name, well, a few different names. It goes by the Expedition of Cyrus, the Persian Expedition, but most commonly, I think, is the Greek name for the book, Anabasis, the Ascent. It's about a failed coup, or maybe you'd call it a failed revolution, and it's about how a group of soldiers who were hired to help orchestrate it, fight that revolution. Well, how they recovered from that failure and managed to survive against the odds. And it's also the story of one man rising up to lead that scattered group of soldiers. It's written by Xenophon of Athens, who was a friend of Socrates. He was also a friend of the Spartan king, Agesilaus. And most importantly, he was the man who rose up to lead them. And so the author of the book is a direct participant in the events, which is pretty special. And this is a book that I reread while I was working on the biography of Agesilaus, coming soon. And while I'm putting that together, I thought it wouldn't be too difficult or time consuming, in the meantime, to share with you some notes and highlights from Anabasis that I thought you would find valuable or interesting. And, you know, I like Anabasis. And it pairs well with the lives of Lysander and Agesilaus. And Anabasis was extremely popular in the 18th and 19th centuries as a book uh, for the general public and also for schoolboys, both to read it in English and also in Greek. It was one of the first texts that people would read of real Greek when they used to learn Greek more in schools, ancient Greek. And it was thought to be an excellent text on leadership. Um, And it is. And there's also a lot of adventure and some very disturbing scenes. Um, it's a lot of fun, though. I will say, however, it's, it's a challenging text. Uh, Xenophon gives you, for example, a lot of details. Because he really wants you to have all the data so that you can understand the leadership decisions clearly that people are making at any given time. Because Xenophon knows mastering the details that are available to you is really crucial for making the right call as so many famous founders and CEOs know, such as John Rockefeller, for example, who was a really scrupulous keeper of accounts for all of his life. Uh, So, you know, Xenophon is an author very much worth reading, but for our purposes here, I think it's better to just do some highlights here of the interesting parts and some notes here, in no way intended to be a, a satisfactory summary or synopsis, but this is all from book one of the Anabasis. So... Xenophon jumps right in. The passage that we just read gives you the background. There's uh, a new king on the throne, Cyrus's brother. This is Cyrus the Younger, not Cyrus the Great, who was the founder of the Persian Empire about a century and a half earlier than what we're talking about today. Uh, But Cyrus is the younger brother, and he has a sort of a quarrel with his brother. Uh, But it's really the fault, at least according to Xenophon, of this other... Satrap, this other governor, Tissaphernes. Cyrus has been made a governor as well. And Cyrus wants to make sure that this never happens again. He wants to be independent. That's at least Xenophon's motives for, um, that he attributes to Cyrus. And I think it's interesting here to note that Xenophon is a participant in the story. He does come up in book one in the third person, just very briefly. But he doesn't start the story... Here is a history of my times. I am Xenophon of Athens. He starts with what he thinks his audience is already interested in and already knows about this great uh, pivotal event that happened in their own lifetimes for a lot of them. And he's going to eventually talk about himself, but he begins with what he knows his audience is going to resonate better with. So that's, that's the background. Uh, Cyrus's first problem that Xenophon talks about is, well, you're going to revolt against... The King of Persia, maybe the most powerful man in the world. How do you raise an army without the king knowing it? You want to have at least some element of surprise, because where it's going to get around, you know how do you cover your tracks? The king's got spies and you know informants everywhere. Well, here's what Cyrus does. First of all, he picks a fight with Tissaphernes. The king can definitely understand that. Uh, Tissaphernes is the satrap of Lydia, which is on the coast of Asia Minor, and Cyrus is a neighboring satrap, a neighboring governor of this province that happens to border the cities and, and contain the cities of a lot of Greeks. And so uh, Cyrus picks a fight with Tissaphernes. He uh, raises an army to, uh, you know, capture some cities from Tissaphernes. And you might think that a king would frown upon his governors warring against each other. But uh, turns out that the Persians didn't really mind that much uh, if their governors kind of uh, quarreled amongst themselves. As long as the tribute, as long as the tax kept flowing into the royal coffers, um, you know, they saw competition among their governors as uh, not necessarily a problematic thing. So uh, that's the first thing Cyrus does. He raises... Uh, a merchant, uh, a mercenary force to fight against Tissaphernes. He takes a few cities from Tissaphernes, and that gives him a fighting force that he's kind of training up. And then he finds a rogue Spartan commander in the area named Clearchus, and this rogue Spartan commander Clearchus is a, a pretty interesting guy. I want to read you. Um, a little bit about Clearchus in a second here, but basically he, Clearchus comes to Cyrus. He's, he's been exiled and he asks for a job and Cyrus happily gives him a job, basically pays him a lot of money to start, he pays him a lot of money secretly to start making war on some other tribe kind of in the region, the Thracians, uh, or one of the tribes of the Thracians. Uh, and Clearchus is making war upon the Thracians it's not really clear in whose name he's doing this he's sort of uh, doing this on behalf of uh, Greeks in the area there are Greek cities that the Thracians often raid and uh, so he's saying well I'm gonna I'm gonna keep the Thracians off of these independent Greek cities but secretly he's receiving money from Cyrus so Cyrus is building up an army with Clearchus as well and it, it, I'll, I'll read you a little bit about Clearchus because this is A really important character in the story, and I think um, an interesting character study. This is actually from book two. Clearchus, by common consent of all who were personally acquainted with him, seemed to have shown himself a man who was both fitted for war and fond of war to the last degree. For in the first place, as long as the Lacedaemonians, that is the Spartans, were at war with the Athenians, he bore his part with them. Remember, he's a Spartan himself. Then, as soon as peace had come, he persuaded his state that the Thracians were injuring the Greeks, and after gaining his point as best he could from the ephors, the authorities at Sparta, he set sail with the intention of making war upon the Thracians who dwelt beyond the Cursonese and Perinthus, when, however, this is interesting, the ephors changed their minds for some reason or other, and after he had already gone, tried to turn him back from the Isthmus at Corinth, at that point, he declined to render further obedience, but went sailing off to the Hellespont. And as a result, he was condemned to death by the authorities at Sparta on the ground of disobedience to orders. So that's Clearchus. And this is actually the guy that that uh, Cyrus ends up really having as the commander of the Greeks that he ends up hiring. So we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. So So Cyrus does does this kind of thing with a few more generals, uh, a few more kind of uh, warlords in various regions in the area. He, he, he pays them to wage war on some neighboring tribe, train up a fighting force, not, you know, it's in secret. He doesn't, you know, nobody knows that he's doing this. Um, they just think that so-and-so is fighting so such-and-such tribe. But really, um, Cyrus tells some of these guys, don't don't end your conflict with this neighboring tribe until I tell you, until I'm ready. So he's kind of getting, getting a fighting force ready for for what he's planning. And I think this gives you a sense of how amazingly rich the Persians were, that, that Cyrus has the funds to do all this and still pay the tribute that he owes the king. But, but this is something that I think you have to ask yourself anytime you're going to do anything daring. How are you going to find the talent um, and with something that requires massive amounts of manpower, I think that question is a lot more urgent. Another question that is interesting is how are you going to get them to follow you on a really daring expedition? And that's going to come out a little bit as we go on here, but uh, especially I want to get that to that further on towards the end. Um, so, you know, I won't give you all the details on how he raised the army, but he, he calls them up to war at last. Uh, and, and this is how Xenophon gets roped into this. He's a Greek and uh, he has a friend who is a friend of Cyrus. And the friend is like raising a force of a few hundred Greek hoplites who have nothing better to do than uh, go fight for a, a Persian prince. And they're going to make a lot of money in the process. He's going to pay them quite well. So eventually they, they start marching off to war. Cyrus tells them that they're going to fight against the Pisidians, which is some tribe in southern uh, Asia Minor. It's a mountainous region, warlike tribes. It's it's kind of plausible. Everybody believes them except Tissaphernes. Tissaphernes suspects the force that Cyrus is marching towards Pisidia is too big. He thinks that Cyrus has something else up his sleeve. So Tissaphernes goes off to try to warn the king. And so they're marching along through Asia, and uh, this interesting interlude happens that I think tells you a lot about the dynamics here. Along the way, Cyrus is does end up kind of running short of money. I mean, you could say he was uh, wealthy, but you know, cash poor at the moment. He spent a lot of his gold on, on these troops. He's kind of behind on paying his troops, and a queen from Cilicia uh, rides out to meet him on the way. Epiaxa of Cilicia is her name, and she brings money from Cilicia to support Cyrus's expedition. Again, nobody knows, nobody's talking about, well, a few people know, but generally nobody's aware of what they're doing or where they're going. Uh, but but Epiaxa comes and gives Cyrus uh, money to pay for the troops, and um, it turns out that uh, they either already were or at that moment, they become lovers, even though she's married to the king of Cilicia, whose name is Cyenesis. Um, that might be actually just the word for king in Cilicia, but whatever. That's she's already got a husband, um, and yet she's uh, you know consorting with this Cyrus guy, which I think is kind of um, gets you to raise an eyebrow about you know what's going on there. But so the way that um, ancient armies work. Why the issue of pay kind of becomes urgent. I think you gotta, this helps you appreciate what, how the logistics of ancient warfare worked. The general doesn't keep a staff to um, supply food and they don't like buy rations and then distribute them to the troops. They just give the troops money and let them buy their own rations. And if they're in the right kind of territory, then they can peacefully trade for, you know, meat and bread and stuff and, you know, leather, whatever they need, Um, rather than the general having to arrange for the logistics of everything. If they're in really hostile territory, the general will often just let them go raid, but the general will, basically his duty in uh, in typical ancient expeditions is to make sure that there's a market to buy food. So he'll send word out to the countryside and the merchants and the bakers and the Sausage cart pushers, etc., and they'll they'll come out and they know that they're going to get a good price for their wares. So, uh, yeah, what do you think of that? I think that's kind of interesting. Outsourcing this task to vendors instead of doing it in house, focusing on you know what you're good at, which is warfare, if you're a commander, hopefully. And so there's this funny scene that happens. This Queen Epioxa asks Cyrus to make a display of his army to some kind of a military parade or ex- exhibition. And so he has them all line up in a plane and in battle formation in their, in their finest armor and their, you know, their purple cloaks and they're looking very warlike and, uh, and stately and, uh, and they do some drills. And then at this uh, towards the end of the drill, he gives the word out to that. He, he wants them to charge the camp. And so Epioxa, the queen is at the camp and all of the sausage sellers and the bakers and the, the tanners and everybody, they're all there at the, at the army's camp, just kind of watching the demonstration, enjoying the show. And then all of a sudden, the Greeks, um, he has them line up in battle formation. They lock shields as they do in, in the phalanx formation. And they start to advance towards the camp and they start to charge at a run. <laughs> and, uh, okay, I'm just reading here. Uh, and then as they went faster and faster at length with a shout, the troops broke into a run of their own accord in the direction of the camp. As for the barbarians and the others, they were terribly frightened. The Cilician queen took flight in her carriage and the people in the market left their wares behind and took to their heels while the Greeks with a roar of laughter came up to their camp. Now the Cilician queen was filled with admiration at beholding the brilliant appearance and the order of the Greek army. And Cyrus was delighted to see the terror with which the Greeks inspired the barbarians. So I guess the queen kind of liked the joke and, and Cyrus was pleased. This is you know maybe a foreshadowing of what he hopes is going to happen when they, when they face a non-Greek army in the coming days. And Greeks were widely regarded as the best fighters in this area. So on their way, skipping over a lot, um, but they get to Cilicia proper to a city called Tarsus, which is actually where St. Paul was from. It's kind of uh, it's like South central Turkey. When they get there, the Greeks are like, wait a sec. We already passed Pisidia. Where are we going actually and they suspect that they're going to go fight the king, but Cyrus won't won't tell them that and he won't really tell them where they're going because now that the whole Pisidia story doesn't seem plausible anymore and there's a mutiny of the Greek troops. And Tarsus is really one of the last stops along the sea, and if they go any further east they're they're going to go upland and you know when Greeks get away from the sea they start to get kind of nervous uh, so the soldiers are, are mutinying they're thinking this is not worth it uh, wherever they're going uh, they're demanding to know more information they want to sail back they're even talking about like approaching Cyrus and saying we're done pay for us to have ships you know to, to have ships come pick us up or you know lead us away with your guides uh, this is all really kind of bold considering the position they're in um, and and Clearchus, is a man that they're they're lodging a lot of their complaints to. Clearchus is one of the main commanders. He's probably the the, the senior commander of the Greek mercenaries. There's about twelve thousand Greek mercenaries, um, which are kind of like the the elite of the army that Cyrus is amassing. And Clearchus knows the real plan. He knows where they're really going, but um, he doesn't you know he doesn't divulge the secret. And he does something tricky here as these troops are um, making these demands before him. And I think this is an interesting example for how do you retain the loyalty if you're kind of in a middle position in a chain of command. How do you retain the loyalty of your subordinates and also your superior at the same time if they're having a conflict? And so, well, here's what Clearchus does. So he addresses the troops. He tells them, I'll lead you wherever you want to go. We came here following Cyrus. I think Cyrus is a great man. he's a, a personal friend of mine. I would be very upset to betray him uh, to betray his friendship, but I would be even more upset to be- betray your friendship. So uh, if you don't want to go further inland, I understand uh, I- I'm your, I'm your commander. I'm happy to lead you wherever you want to go. And so Cyrus gets word of this. he sends. Messages to Clearchus, uh, what's going on? And he summons Clearchus. He said, "Come to my tent." And Clearchus refuses, but he sends a secret message to Cyrus: "Keep summoning me. I'll keep refusing, but keep summoning me. But don't worry, I've got this under control. It's going to turn out well. Just trust me." And so Cyrus keeps sending summonses to Clearchus. Come, come, Clearchus. And Clearchus keeps. Saying that he won't go, and and you know the Greeks around him see this, and he's he's sending a, a message here just with his actions that Clearchus is one of the Greeks. He's with them. That's where his loyalty lies with his men. So Clearchus is kind of working on them psychologically, and and, and eventually you know the debate goes on. Clearchus kind of lets them vent their anger, and he lets a lot of other voices rise up and kind of make the arguments that he'd like to see made. Um, Tempers rise, and and eventually Clearchus stands up and he addresses them, and he says, Let no one among you speak of me as a man who is to hold this command, for I see many reasons why I should not do so. Say rather that I shall obey to the best of my ability the man whom you choose, in order that you may know that I understand as well as any other person in the world how to be a subordinate also end quote. And Clearchus basically resigns his command. He says, you appoint a different commander. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, I don't think I'm the guy for the job anymore. I'm going to obey whoever you pick. This is a, a thing that Xenophon really harps on in many places, that in his view, a good leader is one who knows how to command and also how to be commanded. And so this Really, in Xenophon's view was a thing that that spoke to the troops It really won their trust over and this is you know arguably not the way that we see a lot of celebrated leaders or at least celebrated founders uh, talked about today you know a lot of entrepreneurs talk about how they were a bad employee or you know how they always wanted to work for themselves and they just couldn't stand not being their own boss and I'm not saying which is better, but you know for Xenophon the model of, of a great leader is more, you know how to obey and how to command. Worth considering. So eventually the troops pick Clearchus after he's resigned to go and lay their complaints before Cyrus. And Cyrus ups their pay and he says, okay, okay, uh, I'll tell you where we're going. Uh, really, I'm just going to punish this uh, rival satrap, who is a personal enemy of mine, and he's just a little further inland at the Euphrates River. It's 12 days march inland. We go defeat him, and then we can come back. And at this point, the Greeks don't really buy the story, Xenophon says. They think that they're probably going against the great king, but... This whole altercation, like there's been some defections and Cyrus has just been very gracious with people who have decided to leave and just not, not done the Persian thing that Persians usually do with dissenters, which is, you know, have them crucified and, and tortured and stuff. And they're, they're all, they all like the way that Cyrus has handled the situation. They also like the way that Clearchus has handled the situation. They really start to feel it's been an opportunity for them to air their grievances, but also remind themselves that they all really actually like Cyrus, and they feel duty bound by the Greek customs of friendship, even though they are getting paid. That's important, but you know, friendship is almost like a more important, meaningful, symbolic principle that, that they want to adhere to, and so they're 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 in for the for the ride, um, and and they decide to follow on uh, despite their reservations. So. I'm going to skip a lot here, um, but they are traveling an interesting route that has been traveled by many armies in history, including the Roman Emperor Julian the Apostate in 363 AD. Uh, It's a fateful campaign that he fought at the end of his life, which this really reminds me of in a lot of ways. Um, I'm just going to give you a couple passages about the route. Uh, This little bit is interesting. Uh, After this, Cyrus marched four stages, 20 parasangs. That's like, you know, five days march. To the Callus River, which is a plethron in width and full of large, tame fish. These fish, the Syrians regarded as gods, and they would not allow anyone to harm them or the doves either. Well, what a world, huh? And then, so they crossed the Euphrates River they're in northern Iraq, and Xenophon he describes the region like this. Trees there were none but wild animals of all sorts, vast numbers of wild asses, and many ostriches, besides bustards, that's like a kind of a wild turkey, and gazelles. These animals were sometimes chased by the horsemen. As for the asses, whenever one chased them, they would run on ahead and stop for they ran much faster than the horses. And then when the horses came near, they would do the same thing again, and it was impossible to catch them unless the horsemen posted themselves at intervals and hunted them in relays. The flesh of those that were captured was like venison, but more tender. But no ostrich was captured by anyone, and any horseman who chased one speedily desisted, for it would distance him at once with its flight, not merely plying its feet, but hoisting its wings and using them like a sail. The bustards, on the other hand, can be caught if one is quick in starting them up, for they fly only a short distance like partridges and soon tire, and their flesh was delicious. Xenophon actually wrote a short treatise on hunting. and He tells you how to hunt bunnies and stuff in Greece. And he thought that hunting was uh, good training for military endeavors so that's interesting now eventually they get so far inland Cyrus figures it's safe to tell them now they are in fact marching against the great king but at that point they're all finally committed um they're quite quite a ways inland they're along for the ride and so they they keep following him and there's something interesting about Cyrus uh, as they're on their way. Uh, this, this event occurs and, you know, I think most leaders or m- many leaders taking a really big risk, they might back off a little bit. You know, they're, they're asking these men to make a huge risk on their behalf. Cyrus is asking these men to make a huge risk on his behalf. You, you could see how he'd want to sort of not push it too far as he's leading and not like ask extra things of them. Uh, But Cyrus instead really leans into into his leadership roles. Here's what happens. But it seemed to him that they took their time with the work. So just a little bit of context. The wagons are are getting stuck in a like steep, muddy area. They're coming down a hill or something. and, And the wagons are getting stuck. But it seemed to him that they took their time with their work. Accordingly, as if in anger he directed the Persian nobles who accompanied him to take a hand in hurrying on the wagons. And then, one might have beheld a sample of good discipline, they each threw off their purple cloaks where they chanced to be standing, and rushed, as a man would run to win a victory, down a most exceedingly steep hill, wearing these costly tunics and colored trousers, some of them indeed with necklaces around their necks and bracelets on their arms. And leaping at once with all this finery into the mud, they lifted the wagons high and dry and brought them out more quickly than one would have thought possible. So, I mean, Cyrus already here is, he's acting like a king. You know, he's, he's, he's on his way to become a king. He really leans into the fact that he has a right to ask these men a lot. I thought that was really interesting. And the fact that they obey so eagerly is also really interesting too. And just a little bit more here. And in general it was clear that Cyrus was in haste throughout the whole journey and was making no delays except where he halted to procure provisions or for some other necessary purpose. His thought was that the faster he went the more unprepared the king would be to fight him. While on the other hand the slower he went the greater would be the army that was gathering for the king. So by this time, the king, you know, has got there, and the king is, is mustering his troops, and, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty obvious to both sides that they're going to fight a massive battle shortly. And so they, they finally do meet the king's forces at a place called Kunaxa. It's not really clear uh, to historians where exactly the battle was, uh, but it's someplace in central to northern Iraq along the Euphrates River, kind of near Babylon, uh, it wasn't called Iraq back then. It was called uh, Babylonia or Mesopotamia. But they're they're getting ready for for the battle. And I think one pe- question that people often wonder when they're reading the Anabasis is why would Cyrus make all the effort to recruit all these Greek mercenaries? He's got more than ten thousand of them. That's that's a lot. Um, he also has about a hundred thousand uh, other barbarian troops. Um, but you know why is he getting these Greeks and uh, taking such care to make sure that they don't revolt and paying them so much. And in a little speech before the battle, I think Cyrus kind of answers that question. So he addresses them before the battle. He says, men of Greece, it is not because I have not barbarians enough that I have brought you hither to fight for me, but because I believe that you are braver and stronger than many barbarians. For this reason, I took you also. Be sure therefore to be men worthy of the freedom you possess upon the possession of which i congratulate you for you may be certain that freedom is the thing i should choose in preference to all that i have and many times more so you can see why why the greeks love this guy he he really understands their values and uh and you know he he communicates to them that he shares them freedom being perhaps the most important value to all of the Greeks, in the free Greek city-states that these men are from. And I won't go into many details of the battle itself. You can read the book. There are links to editions in the show notes. I'll tell you a little bit about them at the end. Uh, But before the battle, everyone is urging Cyrus not to fight in the front lines, but to stay back and guard his person. That's a bit of foreshadowing there. Uh, they're vastly outnumbered. Uh, Xenophon says that they have, uh, you know, they have 112,500 or so troops on Cyrus's side. And he says that the, the great king Artaxerxes has more than a million. And uh, that's not, not believed by historians, but they probably have at least two or three times as many troops, maybe four times as many fighting for the king. Uh, but in the fight, the Greeks uh, win the battle on their side. You know, ancient, ancient warfare is is kind of like a clash between two lines. And uh, the Greeks on their side of the line, they win. And Cyrus is actually winning in his section of the battle. He's kind of in the center. Uh, but then as, as they're putting the Persians to flight, he sees his brother, Artaxerxes, the king. And he decides to charge him. And in this daring action, Cyrus ends up wounding Artaxerxes with a spear. He wounds him, but he doesn't kill him. And the soldiers around the king end up killing Cyrus in the battle. And Xenophon points out earlier, before the battle uh, narration, he points out that Cyrus wasn't even wearing a helmet, although everyone else was. Uh, So always wear a helmet. That's the lesson. No, I mean, I I think this is interesting because... Um, Cyrus ends up actually getting wounded first by taking a pretty serious blow in the face right below the eye um, and Xenophon kind of suggests that this disorients him that it, kind of because of this he he ends up getting killed in this struggle and this is how Xenophon is usually going to criticize people that he admires. He gives you the facts and lets you decide. And that's generally the way that he writes. And, and if you, you are going to read Xenophon's Anabasis, like know that about Xenophon, that he's not going to draw all the conclusions for you, but the details are, are almost always there because he wants you to pay attention to what's going on uh, and the decisions that are being made. So once again, I'm not going to give you the details of the battle. The Greeks win, but they also lose because with Cyrus dead, the whole cause is lost. And I just want to end here with a series of excerpts from a final passage in the book that Xenophon gives as a kind of eulogy on Prince Cyrus at the end of book one. And, you know, you wonder, right, what kind of man could assemble an army of 115,000 people or so to fight against great odds against maybe the most powerful man in the world at the time? And here's what Xenophon says. In this way, then, Cyrus came to his end, a man who was the most kingly and the most worthy to rule of all the Persians who have been born since Cyrus the Elder, Cyrus the Great, that is, as all agree who are reputed to have known Cyrus intimately. For firstly, while he was still a boy and was being educated with his brother and the other boys, he was regarded as the best of them all in all respects, for all the sons of the noblest Persians are educated at the king's court. There one may learn discretion and self-control in full measure, and nothing that is base can be either seen or heard. And the boys have before their eyes the spectacle of men honored by the king, and of others dishonored, and they likewise hear of them. And so from earliest boyhood they are learning how to rule, and how to submit to rule. There's that thing that Xenophon constantly is pointing at. Good leaders know how to rule and how to submit to rule. Arcane Kai thai in Greek. Uh, Skipping ahead here a little bit. Again, when he was sent down by his father to be satrap of Lydia, greater Phrygia, and Cappadocia, and was also appointed to command all of the troops whose duty it is to muster in the plain of Castellus, he showed in the first place that he counted it of utmost importance when he concluded a treaty or compact with anyone or made anyone any promise under no circumstances to prove false to his word. It was for this reason then that the cities trusted him and put themselves under his protection and that individuals also trusted him. And if anyone had been an enemy when Cyrus made a treaty with him, He trusted that he would suffer no harm in violation of that treaty. And so Cyrus learned from an early age, from his education maybe, that if you want to make a big ask of people at some point later in your career, build up a long track record of keeping your word. Because when you really need it, you'll want to have 10, 20 years of good reputation behind you. Moving on here, it was manifest that whenever a man conferred any benefit upon Cyrus or did him any harm, he always strove to outdo him. In fact, some people used to report it as a prayer of his, that he might live long enough to outdo both those who benefited and those who injured him, returning like for like. Hence it was that he had a greater following than any other one man of our time, of friends who eagerly desired to entrust to him both treasure and cities and their very bodies. Skipping ahead a little bit. But it was the brave in war, as all agree, whom he honored especially. For example, he was once at war with the Pisidians and the Mycians and commanded in person an expedition into their territories, and whomsoever in his army he found willing to meet dangers these men he would not only appoint as rulers of the territory he was subduing, but would honor thereafter with other gifts also. Thus the brave were seen to be most prosperous, while cowards were deemed fit to be their slaves. Consequently, Cyrus had men in great abundance who were willing to meet danger wherever they thought that he would observe them. End quote. So there's a lesson in rewarding the kind of behavior you want to see a little bit more here to be sure the fact that he outdid his friends in the greatness of the benefits he conferred is nothing surprising for the manifest reason that he had greater means than they but that he surpassed them in solicitude and in eagerness to do favors this in my opinion is more admirable For example, when Cyrus got some particularly good wine, he would often send the half-emptied jar to a friend with the message, Cyrus says that he has not chanced upon better wine than this for a long time, so he sends it to you and asks you to drink it up today, in company with the friends you love best. And so he would often send halves of geese and of loaves and so forth, instructing the bearer to add the message, Cyrus enjoyed this and therefore wants you to take a taste of it, end quote. I love that. All right, finally. Hence, as I at least conclude from what comes to my ears, no man, Greek or barbarian, has ever been loved by a greater number of people. Here is a fact to confirm that conclusion. Although Cyrus was a slave, well, I mean, The Greeks consider anybody under a king a slave. So you got to take that with a grain of salt there. So although Cyrus was a slave, no one deserted him to join the king, save that Orontas attempted to do so. It's a story that Xenophon tells. And Mark you, speedily, that man found out that he who imagined was faithful to him uh, was more devoted to Cyrus than to him. So Orontas was basically... Betrayed in his treachery by uh, a slave of his that actually wanted to be with Cyrus rather than with Orontas. Okay. On the other hand, many went over from the king to Cyrus after the two had become enemies. These being, moreover, the men who especially possessed self-respect. The best men went over to Cyrus because they thought that if they were deserving, they would gain a worthier reward with Cyrus than with the king. Furthermore, what happened to Cyrus at the end of his life is the strong indication that he was a true man himself, and that he knew how to judge those who were faithful, devoted, and constant. When he died, namely, all his bodyguard of friends and table companions died fighting in his defense. Such a man was Cyrus, in Xenophon's eyes. And with that, the cause of the revolt was lost. The coup failed. And the Greeks, 10,000 or so of them, had to figure out what to do next. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed this. Slightly different format. Let me know what you think. If you want to support this podcast and uh, I've piqued your interest in reading Xenophon, well, I've put some links to some editions of Xenophon's Anabasis in the show notes. Those are Amazon affiliate links. So if you buy a book using them, I'll get a little bitty commission at no cost to you or to the author of the book. Um, I personally used the Loeb edition. That's what I typically use. The the recently revised revised edition by Dillery. Um, The Loeb editions have the Greek and the English facing each other. The English facing each other. Uh, For non-specialists, I do like the Old Penguin edition by Rex Warner and George Cockwell. It is very readable um, but there's also a new Landmark edition of Xenophon's Anabasis, which just came out last fall. And that has a lot of maps and commentary. It's it's a series, the Landmark series. Um, they're big and bulky and beautiful. And uh, I highly recommend adding Anabasis to your library. I personally would probably get the Landmark. Um, I just love all those maps and those little commentaries and the essays in there. Um, but uh, there you have it. Thanks for listening. Stay strong. Stay ancient. This is Alex Petkus. Until next time.